Good morning, friends. Our reading today comes from Acts, uh, chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, thanks for that reading, Wayne. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you've heard, we're jumping into our main series for Term 3 as we get back into the Book of Acts. We looked at 1 to 8 at the end of last year, and uh, we'll be doing 9 and onwards both this term and into fourth term. Um, before I pray for us and we have a look at this passage, um, which has this amazing story regarding Saul, there is one um, sad piece of news I need to pass on to our church family. Our dear sister Faye Robertson um, went to be with the Lord on Thursday. Um, and so I encourage you to be praying for um, John and Loretta and Jessica and Ido and the kids, extended family. Um, 
she had a strong faith throughout her life and um yeah but it's been a quick four months since she was diagnosed with a brain tumor so uh, there's no details yet about a service it's going to be a memorial service so it'll probably be a little bit later so there may not be info that comes out until later this week um but we'll let people know via email um, so that you can be part of that when that time comes let me pray uh, for that family and to pray for us now um, as we come to god's word our heavenly father we do thank you that you are a god of love a god of compassion that you understand our frailty our weakness and you are near to uh, those who are grieving so we, we do pray lord that you would help uh, john and loretta and jessica and all of the family uh, at this sad time with uh, the passing of our, our dear sister uh, Faye, uh, we pray, Lord, giving thanks for her strong faith in you throughout her life, that uh, she is with you, uh, that there is great assurance for the family and for all of us as her church family. Uh, but we do pray that you would help us as we mourn her loss, particularly the family and those uh, closest to her. Uh, Lord, strengthen them at this time, we ask. We pray too for ourselves now as we come to your word this morning, as we think about your incredible actions in the life of one man and, and the ramifications of that. Help us to uh, understand more of your sovereign plans uh, and also their impact on our lives today. We ask for your help now through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, just a couple of months ago in June of this year, Robert Hansen died in prison. You may not have heard of Hansen, but he was an FBI agent turned Soviet spy who was considered the most destructive double agent in US history. He joined the FBI in 1976, and by 1979, he was an active spy for the Kremlin. And among the many things that he leaked over a couple of decades were the identities of all the Russians who were spying for the United States, which led to a number of them dying. Uh, the fact that the FBI was tunneling under the new Soviet embassy that was being built in the US at one point to tap into its communications. He revealed all the methodologies that the United States used to spy on the Soviets throughout the world. He even revealed the plans that the United States had if nuclear war broke out against the Russians. He was able to get away with it for so long because he was hidden in plain sight. He worked for the FBI. And ironically, the FBI eventually had to pay $7 million to a KGB agent from Russia to obtain a file on an anonymous mole whom they later identified as Hansen. He was arrested in 2001, uh, just nearby his house in Washington, D.C., and he was charged with selling U.S. intelligence documents to Russia over 22 years to the sum of $1.4 million in cash and diamonds. And to avoid the death penalty, he pleaded guilty to 14 counts of espionage and he was given 15 life sentences. He was naturally seen as a traitor to the American people. I want to say to you this morning, it's no exaggeration to say that from the viewpoint of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, especially the zealot Paul, who we know at this point as Saul, Christians were traitors. They were undermining centuries of Jewish belief. 
they were leading people astray from the Old Testament. And according to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 13 and other places, they should be condemned to death as a result. And so having been introduced to Saul at uh, the end of chapter 7 in the book of Acts, as we considered at the end of last year, where he was involved in the persecution that broke out against Christians in Jerusalem. He was there as Stephen was stoned to death and this huge persecution then spread and engulfed most of the Christians in the city. We now get the story of Saul taken up again here in chapter 9. And in verses 1 and 2, we see that Saul's not going to rest. In fact, he's expanding his brief. And so he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and he gets letters from them that allow him to travel 240 kilometers north to Damascus, a long journey in that day and age, so that he might chase down the Christians that have fled his persecution in Jerusalem and get them and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison. This guy is committed to seeing the gospel stop dead in its tracks. And he, in chapter 8, we're told, went from house to house in Jerusalem and dragged men and women from their homes, round them up and put them in prison. And so now he's going to do the same thing at distance in Damascus. And the reason he's going there is because Damascus is a big commercial hub in that time. And if Christianity flourished there, it might spread to the Gentile world, to many other places. And so Saul wants to stop it in its tracks. And so the persecuted Christians who are fleeing Jerusalem then find themselves threatened again by Saul. Indeed, the gospel message itself is threatened and the fledgling church is in great danger. And so the big question we get as we look at the chapter of Acts 9 is what's going to happen? How will God ensure that the good news continues to spread? In chapters 1 to 8, it's made its way from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And we've been told right back in Acts 1.8, as Simon mentioned at the start of the service, that God's blueprint is that it goes to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Now we're on the cusp of it going to Gentiles, but will it ever make it? Is it going to be cut off at this point by this guy, Saul, with his murderous threats? So let's consider this question. How did God ensure that the good news continued to spread? Two answers to that question this morning. First answer is this, through Saul's conversion and new commission. Through Saul's conversion and new commission. Notice again what is written in verses 3 to 6 as we see this momentous event that took place. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. I mean, just take this in for a moment. He's armed with high priest commission. He's almost at the city he's going to to be able to round up Christians, and then he is struck down, struck blind on the road just outside the city. And we know from Saul's other accounts, because he keeps retelling this amazing story, as you would later in the book of Acts, that this happened around midday. This is the middle of the day, and he speaks about a light that outshone the sun. And he is blinded, struck down, and he hears this voice in Aramaic saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And as he replies, who are you, Lord? We think when we hear the word Lord, Lord Jesus. He's not thinking that at all. It was a term that was just used for somebody in authority. Master, sir, who are you, sir? He is not expecting the answer that he gets. 
I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He's now confronted with Jesus, the once crucified, but now risen heavenly Lord, the one whom Saul is persecuting through attacking his followers. And so it's incredible then that in verse 6, he is given a new commission from Christ himself. He is the chief persecutor. And though the full details are not known at this point, he's going to be given them later by Ananias in town. He is suddenly gone from one mission to another in an instant. It's hard to over-exaggerate just how incredible this moment is in this man's life. He's on a mission to imprison people. He's now commanded by Christ, the one he's persecuting, to go into that same city, but he's got new orders. He was a religious zealot. He was arrogant. He was powerful. And here he is humbly being led in by others because he can't even see. He's going to remain blind for three days. What an incredible change wrought by Jesus. It's hard to comprehend an about face any bigger than that. Famous British author C.S. Lewis uh, once stated that his story was a bit similar to Saul's. He was found by God rather than vice versa. He said, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. And he stalked me and he took unerring aim and fired. And I am so thankful that this is how our first meeting took place. Because it forearms one against the subsequent fears that the whole thing was only a fulfilment of my wish. Something that one never wished for can hardly be a result of your own efforts. Well, God is able to work. His sovereign will, despite our puny plans, never underestimate that. Jesus had intervened dramatically in Saul's life. He had found Saul. He had taken charge of his life. But as we reflect on who this man was just a little bit longer, Saul's perspective before his conversion here. Elsewhere, he tells later in the book of Acts that he was a strict Pharisee. Apparently he'd been brought up in Jerusalem, even though he'd been born in Tarsus. He was trained by one of the best in Gamaliel, a top teacher of the law. And for him, for Saul, the notion of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. You, you can't have that. Messiah, Christ, they rule, they triumph, they win. They don't get killed in a humility, humiliating way on a cross. The law insists that anyone who dies, who's hung on a tree, is cursed by God. Surely, therefore, he thought, the insistence that this Jesus is the Messiah that we're waiting for is not only stupid, it's completely blasphemous. And this insurrection that's happening, this fledgling church that's growing, it's a dangerous problem. It has to be snuffed out. It needed a man of courage, and he was going to be it, Just like Phineas in the day of Moses, he was going to take bold action, decisive action. He was going to cut off these perverters of the truth. And so he was zealous to stop this gospel. And here he is. He has met the resurrected, glorified Christ on the road to trying to imprison people. And now he can no longer doubt. 
His thinking now has to change radically. There's a massive shift that's now got to go on. If Jesus were alive and glorified, then somehow his death did not prove that he was cursed. Far from it, this claim of these Christians, these believers that God had raised him from the dead, well, it must be true. He now had proof. And that could only mean one thing, that God the Father had vindicated Jesus, that he truly was the Christ. Isn't there something wonderful about how God can intervene in the most unlikely person's life? That he can bring anybody to faith, that nothing is impossible with God. It should spur us on to pray, right? For our family, our friends, loved ones, work colleagues that seem a long way away from the Lord. We think that person will never become a Christian. Never say never with God. God can work in somebody like Saul. We always think of him as the great missionary, the Apostle Paul, greatest Christian to ever live. He was the most feared and hated person alive by Christians in those early days. They saw him as evil. All of this should cause us to pause, though. It's exciting that God can do anything. It should also make us think whether we've fully understood God's grace, which can suddenly seem a bit scandalous to us. You tell me, if the chief persecutor of Christians in North Korea right now became a Christian in the next five minutes and then wanted to turn up on church on Sunday, are all the North Koreans going to want to sit next to that guy? How are they going to receive him? If that happened in Nigeria today or Afghanistan or any number of the top 10 most persecuted countries and the person who was going rounding up people, devastating families, destroying the church, killing and imprisoning people, how are they going to be viewed? They can't come to faith. It's impossible. What if someone you considered a monster because of their crimes trusted in Jesus. Would you celebrate their salvation? Or would you be horrified that God might accept them? You may remember the story of Jeffrey Dahmer from the 1990s. He was the American serial killer from Milwaukee who killed 16 of his homosexual lovers, then dismembered their bodies and kept the parts of them in his fridge and freezer and around his house till he was eventually caught. He was sentenced in 1992 to 15 life terms, or 957 years. He didn't get to serve more than two of them because he was killed by a fellow prisoner in 1994 at the age of 34, but not before he placed his faith in Jesus. There was a lady who wrote to him, in prison and said, you need God. We offer a course. You could study. To her shock, he said, I'd like to do that. He did the course. At the end of it, he confessed that he'd become a Christian and he asked if he could be baptised. They didn't believe him. But they, they put him in contact 
the local church minister down the road, Church of Christ, a guy named Roy Ratcliffe, who was not sure about the genuineness of his confession either. So he went and studied the Bible with him in jail over several weeks, became convinced that this man had truly become a Christian, and he baptised him in prison. How does that situation sit with you? Can God forgive such a person? Or is Jeffrey Dahmer beyond God's love, too evil to be extended God's grace? What would you think of being placed next to Jeffrey in heaven one day? Are we any more deserving of God's grace than he is? These big questions are raised when we see the most extreme examples like Saul. And he is an extreme example. But it brings everything else into clarity when we understand the power of what God is able to do in such a moment. And that brings me to a second answer. Second answer to this question. How does God ensure the good news continues to spread? Well, not only by saving somebody like Saul, (laughs) but... Secondly, through a bold sharing of the gospel, despite the cost, from Saul and many others too. Notice again what is recorded in verses 15 and 16 and then 20 to 23. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See, from verse 10 onwards, um, Saul's commission is confirmed and it's outlined more clearly for him. Uh, We see that toward the end of his three days of blindness, he actually gets a vision from God who tells him through that that a man is going to come named Ananias and is going to restore his sight and give him further instruction. And that's what happens. Ananias is a local from Damascus. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's not one of the fugitives that's fled from Jerusalem. But he knows all about Saul. Who doesn't if they're a Christian at this point? He knows all about this persecution that Saul had undertaken in Jerusalem. And that's why he's astonished. He's like, Jesus, I think you've got the wrong guy. Surely the address is wrong that you're giving me. I'm not going to this guy of all people. But he's overruled, isn't he, by the risen Lord Jesus. He's not only told that he should go and courageously Ananias does go, obediently but we see too that jesus says that this hated man saul was actually going to be his chosen instrument to take the gospel to more people than you could imagine the gentiles and their rulers not only the people of israel would hear the gospel through this guy of all people ananias does it 
And it becomes very clear as you read this section closely that these dual events of the blinding light on the Damascus Road and then what Ananias says to him is part of Saul's understanding of his commission. All this is part of Jesus' commissioning of Saul. And so it may have been Ananias who uttered the words to him about what was going to happen next, but it was Christ who was commissioning Saul to be his ambassador through him. It may have been Ananias who laid his hands on him and his sight was restored, but it was Jesus' power that was given to open his eyes and to fill him with the Holy Spirit at this point, and he's baptized following that. And immediately what follows this is we see the incredible transformation. This is no pretense that this man has suddenly become a Christian. His actions match these momentous events. And so notice in verse 20 we read, At once, straight away, suddenly he is preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. The dust would not have settled yet. People would not have realized perhaps that he'd even made it into town, Saul. They're expecting him to be grabbing people and taking them away. And here he is. He's appeared for the first time for many, and he's in the synagogue and he's preaching about Jesus. What is going on? Is it any wonder that they're completely astonished? They can't believe it that this guy is supporting the Christians now. He's speaking about Christ. He talks about Jesus as not only the Son of God, but also the Christ or Messiah. And really, he's probably thinking about Psalm chapter 2, which brings those two themes together, where the writer speaks about, you are my son, talks about the sonship of Christ in Psalm 2 that will be fulfilled by Jesus, but also that he is the Christ, the anointed king who is appointed, who will rule over all nations. And these things are drawn out by Saul as he preaches God's word, to the Jews in the synagogue who are expecting him to be an ally and now he's challenging them about this guy Jesus, reminding them of things like Christ's baptism where the Father says, you are my son. Is it any wonder that they're in shock? He's come to extradite disciples of Jesus, not to add disciples of Jesus. But Jesus was indeed the awaited Christ. He now understood that and he wanted everyone to know and he's proclaiming it loud and clear from the first moment. As we apply these principles and think about this for ourselves today, we've got to ask the question, has that been the response in our life, having come to trust in Jesus, whether that was many years ago or more recently, is that just something that flows out of us that we have to let others know about this incredible news that has saved us and has brought us from death to life, from somebody who hates God, who loves? We're called to share the good news too. It's not simply the role of the original apostles. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, as we often refer to him, would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 17, Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, you may not have been commissioned, blinding light on the road to Damascus or any other road for that matter. 
but you have been commissioned nonetheless. And so the question has to be that we continue to come back to in our lives as Christians is are we sharing this hope that we have that is so important to us? How could we keep it in? Or will we just fail to say anything? You know that when Henry Ford, the creator of the Ford Motor Company, uh, purchased a large insurance policy, the Detroit newspapers made it front page news, such an astronomical sum in that day. This is in the 1920s. The story was read by one of Ford's close friends who worked in insurance, was an insurance salesman, and he couldn't believe it. And so he went and visited Henry Ford and said, why didn't I get to do this policy? Probably worried about the massive commission he just missed out on, I'm sure. But, um, you know, I'm a personal friend. I sell insurance. Why didn't you come to me? Ford said to him simply, you never asked me. Now, how many of our friends can say to us about our failure to share the gospel with us, with them? Well, you never asked to share it with me. You know, often those around us are more open to hear the gospel than we think. Uh, I think we instinctively feel today that we're on the back foot as Christians. We're in a, a culture that is very dismissive of the Christian faith, generally. And so we feel that people are not interested, that we're fearful of saying anything, that we'll just be rejected instantly. But the truth is that the way our media perceives and presents Christianity and its reaction to it is often different to our own personal circles of friends, right? So often, those that we know are battling with the ups and downs of life. They're dealing with the disappointments of broken relationships. They're dealing with the emptiness of their job, of the directionless, purposeless nature of their life. And they're open to hearing. There's also a longing, isn't there, for connection, for community today, especially post-COVID. And the Christian community offers something that is unique. And so there are simple steps that we can take to encourage and introduce people. We don't have to be Billy Graham the evangelist to be able to share something. We can invite somebody and connect them with somebody else. Sam Chan, in some of his books, uh, this one, how to share the gospel without being that guy, um, talks about how we can invite our non-Christians to be part of our Christian friends circle and social events. You're having a barbecue and there's Christians there. Why not invite a couple of non-Christian contacts? Merge your two universes, he will talk about doing. It's so much easier for the non-Christian who might think you're the only Christian they know and just dismiss you as an outlier it's different when they come in contact with a group of people that all have the same Christian worldview as you, who are all trusting in Jesus for purpose and direction in life and suddenly see that this is not such a strange way of thinking about this world. In fact, there are many people that think like this. And suddenly the door can be opened to a conversation and a realisation that, no, being dismissive of the Christian way of thinking is not so straightforward. Now, of course, not everyone will be open to an invitation or open to us sharing more of our faith. Yes, occasionally we'll cop flack for standing up for our faith, being doing what we're called to do as Christians, but that shouldn't surprise us, right? That shouldn't deter us from continuing to share because we know that we have a God who can do the impossible, who can save the souls of this world. 
God is with us. He's going to strengthen us in that event anyway. And our witness to him will bring him praise regardless of the results. Now, this was certainly Saul's experience. Because we read in verses 23 to 30 in our passage that Christ's prediction in verse 16 that I will show this man what he must suffer starts being fulfilled instantly. It's one of those promises you wouldn't like to see instantly fulfilled, right? But in Saul's case, from day one, he starts facing great flack because of who he was in particular. And so we learn that pretty soon they'd had enough, the Jews in Damascus. They weren't going to let this guy stand up in the synagogue and talk about Jesus. They weren't just going to stop him from doing that. They were going to kill him because he was now a huge problem for the Jewish community. He was this person that was their number one persecutor, and now he's a weapon for the gospel who's explaining how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so they are going to run him out of town. They're watching the gate to assassinate him when he leaves Damascus. So the Christians find out about the plot. Saul does, and they lower him in a basket over the city wall at night, and he escapes. And then where does he go? Well, he goes to Jerusalem, where the gospel started, where the main Christian church is at this point. And how is Saul, the persecutor, who goes around and imprisons and kills people welcomed by the church in Jerusalem? Well, not well. They're naturally suspicious of him. They don't trust him. They think he's just somebody coming in to spy on them. And so it takes Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to say, no, no, it's all right. We know like he's the worst person in the world. But look, Joseph Stalin, he's now on our side. Like, yes, he might have been killing millions of people, but he's now a friend of ours. And so he's welcomed in on the basis of Barnabas's encouragement. But pretty soon the Jews in Jerusalem have had enough of Saul as well. I mean, he's a marked figure. He's a leader of the Pharisees previously. And now he's switched sides. And so he has to flee from Jerusalem as well. And the Christians help him escape as well. They take him to Caesarea. They put him on a boat back to Tarsus where he was born. Get him out of harm's way before he gets killed. God's going to use him. He's an instrument. His chosen instrument. Saul knew what it was like to face persecution. And those events in Acts 9 are just the beginning. That's what we're going to be considering, right, over the rest of the book of Acts. Many of you will know he goes on to be beaten multiple times. He's flogged. He's jailed. There's many attempts on his life. He's shipwrecked. It's amazing that he lives as long as he does, but it's because God will sustain him until his plans have been fulfilled in Paul. And he has an amazing ministry as a result, right? He takes the gospel from Antioch to Cyprus to modern-day Turkey to Greece and all the way to the Roman Empire's capital of Rome. But he's going to suffer massively along the way. And eventually, Paul would die at the hands of the Romans, who by the time of Nero in the early AD 60s is just as anti the Christians as the Jews are. He was fierce, Nero. His rage against the Christians was so fierce that a historian Eusebius wrote from that day in the first century, a man might then see cities full of bodies, the old lying together with the young in the open streets. Nero went to great lengths to persecute the Christians. He blamed them for the fire that burned much of Rome under his reign. In 1999, uh, my wife Christine and I visited Rome and we saw the building in the Forum. Maybe you've seen that where the Apostle Paul was eventually held, called the Maritime Prison. And legend has it that 
He was eventually taken from there during the persecution in Nero's reign, taken out by two soldiers out to the edge of the city to the place of execution, and he was beheaded, AD 64. But the Roman Empire was too late. By that point, Paul had taken the gospel to the very edges of the Roman Empire. Tens and tens of churches have been planted. Thousands and thousands of people have become Christians. The gospel had gone out no matter the cost, no matter the suffering. See, I started with the question, how will God ensure that the good news continues to spread? Well, simply by God just changing the chief persecutor into his chief missionary. Step one. Step two, strengthening that man so that no matter what suffering came, that he would continue to share the gospel at whatever cost and that all those he brought to Christ and discipled would have that same attitude so that the Christians from the first century were incredibly bold. Shared the good news. But it's not them. It's not their strength. They're no different to you and I. How is it that this was all happening? Well, this is God's work. This is the power of the Holy Spirit because this gospel is unstoppable because God will see to it that his redemptive plan for humanity unfolds. And we're part of that continuing plan today. Is it not a great privilege to be part of that, to have this word of life, to be able to share that, to see other people included in Christ's kingdom as his ambassadors, knowing that God's grace can change the most radical anti-God person that we can think of? Nothing's impossible with God. His plans will prevail and he has included us in them. And that is amazing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gospel continues to go out today, some 2,000 years later, that the book of Acts continues and continues as the good news spreads to the ends of the earth. We thank you that even in the smallest way, we can be part of that, that we as your children, if we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus, can be part of some something which is incredible, a movement which has spanned two millennium and seen millions upon millions of people understand and believe. Lord, help us to see that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe, that you are with us and you empower us by your spirit and that your word will continue to go out. Help us to be part of your great work. We ask this in Jesus' name.